Well, I'm glad that everyone is doing well this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 26. You don't hear me. Is it because I'm not talking into the actual mic? That's probably what it is. I, you know, I like to mumble. Um, I mean, in theory, we could dismiss the children folk. We have one. (laughs) I'm not counting you, Ellen, don't worry. Ellen was all prepared for today's sermon, though. You saw it. <laughs> um, thank you, Ellen. All right, if you have Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 26. As I mentioned uh, last week, we went over Isaiah chapter 25, um, and we saw how great God's salvation was going to be for those who are faithful, for the, those who place their faith in him, um, to the point of even the resurrection of the dead um, for those people. Now today we continue on with the theme, um, and as I've, I've said this repeatedly, that these few chapters, Isaiah 24, 25, and 26, they're in a way a very big conclusion to all that preceded it, to the point where we saw how all the earthen powers, all the worldly powers, they're not able to stand against God, and so we find in here this culmination of God's greatness and how great he is in regards to um, the powers that are the powers that we experience in this world, whether it be wealth, whether it be wisdom, whether it be um, great leaders and visionaries and things like that. In the end, God is always greater. Um, And so we'll go ahead and look at our map a little bit again. uh, We're done right now for the oracles against the nations. We've already covered, let's say, Babylon. We've covered uh, Damascus, Samaria here. Those were all in the preceding chapters. Go ahead to the next map. And this is, again, what... Uh, Isaiah and Judah and Israel are dealing with this great power of Assyria, which is conquering everything in sight, it seems, and conquering all the known world at the time. Um, And so they're going down, they're even threatening Egypt, which was his own, in a way, power. They ended up being destroyed, though. Well, not destroyed, but beaten. Um, And then the next one, we have Judah and Israel in particular, and they're main neighbors, so Ammon, Moab, and Edom, Philistia, Tyre again, Syria. All of these have been dealt with in the preceding chapters. So now we're getting into Isaiah chapter 26. Verses 1 through 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the heights, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So we begin chapter 26 with, in that day, As often stated in the prophets, the day of the Lord is in view, a day of both doom and salvation, Um, doom for evil, salvation for the faithful. As it is, once that day occurs, there will be a song of praise in Judah. The question is, what is the reason for the song? The answer is that they have a strong city. While the city of the world meets its demise, as we saw in the last chapter, here we find an eternal city. It is a place of refuge and salvation for the people. The gates to the city are open to those who have righteousness and faith. We know from other passages 
that the righteous shall live by faith precisely because righteousness flows from God. As such, faith in God will lead to righteousness by definition, not our own form of righteousness, but his righteousness. While the world continues its siren song to follow it, those who are steadfast in their faithfulness find peace. Why? Because they continue to trust and rely on God. God provides them peace even in the ebbs and the flows of life. Indeed, it is only God such perfect peace can be attained in this life. Since this is the case, the encouragement is to trust in the Lord. If God is our security, and if he provides for us peace in a very hectic world, then to trust in the Lord is the most reasonable conclusion. While the world is unsteady, God is sure, um, like a rock, everlasting in his strength. And as a side note there, remember that this is a song of praise. And so Isaiah and the people are using metaphors in order to express what it is that they're feeling. It's very similar to the Psalms. So when it says, God is an everlasting rock, that does not literally mean a rock. Um, I think a lot of times we forget to read uh, literally, literarily, what it is that the, what they're writing about. This is just a poetic, beautiful form of saying something true. Um, since this is the case, though, um, no. While God has provided peace for his people, he also provides justice for the wicked. Those who would pride themselves are humbled by God. Those in the height are in the, uh, the elites in the world who believe that they are far above all else. Those in the city of the previous chapters that we've been talking about. In the end, that city itself is brought low and it is, as stated in the last chapter, brought to the dust. Indeed, those who were once the oppressed trample, um, are trampled by the mighty foot of God. This is not done by their strength. It is, again, God who accomplishes this. He is the one who tramples those who, in our time even, are the elites. Those who are so far above and think that we are nothing and that all people are nothing except for them. Um, But that doesn't even need to be just the elites either. That can just be pride. That can be ourselves. This can be a little town as is the world. So, we continue on with verses 7 and onward. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, and they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not rise. To that end you have visited them with destruction, and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nations, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. So despite what the world may tell us about what is considered righteous, we know righteousness not because of our arbitrary and subjective culture. True righteousness is from God, and it is a steady road further into his glory. 
God provides us the understanding of righteousness, which is true and sure. We find it further in God's judgments. This concept of judgment can have two connotations and both work contextually. The first is that the judgment's pronounced against the world, as a judge pronounces a uh, judgment sentence against someone who is a criminal. The second is in his law and his statutes. In both cases, God shows us his character, and in showing us his character, the people of faith wait for him. By knowing him, they desire him. The personal understanding of the individuals who have faith in God is made evident in verse 9. Their soul, their very being, yearns for the Lord. All the energy of their spirit seeks God. Why? Because he is worthy of being sought and yearned for. While in our time the judgments of God are seen as archaic, for those who know God, his judgments are good. In God's judgments, his judgments against the wicked and through his law, the world learns what is righteous. While there are those who demand God be all gracious and all loving, the truth is that without his judgments, we would be incapable of learning what is just and righteous. As such, it leads to further corruption when God does not show us his righteousness. It allows people to continue on in their sins, which Isaiah has shown leads to further devastation. God will protect his people with his very hand, yet the world around his people does not see that he protects them. Isaiah requests that they would see his protection clearly, so that those who oppress them would be ashamed. Indeed, let them see the hand of God moving against his enemies. The wicked in the wicked city, which has oppressed his people and caused so much devastation, let them see God's hand. If it is true that God is their protection, then as we've seen previously, only God can provide them their peace. When Isaiah considers all the history of the people of God, he can only conclude what we must after coming to Christ, that God has accomplished everything he has set out to do. Indeed, in the end, it is God who has acted in the world to bring about his people to their place. While we may try to take the credit, in the end, all crowns will be cast at his feet, not ours. The prophet recognizes that in the past there have been rulers over them. Whether this be the time of the enslavement in Egypt, or the judges period with their cyclical pattern of uh, fall, redemption, being (laughs) conquered again, or even Assyria in Isaiah's day, in the end, the people of God have found others who have such powers over them. Yet, those who have come before have fallen, while God remains. They have been cast down into the depths. They have been destroyed by the hand of God. Though they have been oppressors, in the end, God has continued to sustain his people, even in their harshest of times. Indeed, not only that, but he has caused growth to occur with them. The nation has increased, the borders have enlarged. Thus God has shown himself to be their strength against the forces of this world, whether human or otherwise. Indeed, he is not only their strength, but also the one who gives in abundance, the cause of both strength and growth for the people. Now we come to verse 16 through 19. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs. When she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. 
and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The faithful in this world um, live in a world where darkness seems like it's all around, and we experience this too. As such, it is no surprise that distress occurs in this world. Those who are faithful in their distress remain faithful to God. Isaiah does not have a small concept of God, however. While others would wonder how God could allow the struggles to take place, Isaiah recognizes that this is all just discipline. It is in these struggles that discipline can occur. In themselves, they were like a woman in labor. They were, just as with labor there is the pangs of the natural state of birthing, so it is with the people while living their lives. Yet again, we notice it is because of God. Even though the oppressors exist, God exists and provides us a purpose even for our troubled times. They labored and labored, but in the end of their birthing pains, they did not receive the hope of a child, which is also a way of deliverance. No, they received no such thing in their struggles. Their own accomplishments, if we notice that, their own accomplishments did nothing to end the struggles of sin and death. The world and its darkness remained. Even in their faithfulness, they were not able to overcome the whole world. Yet despite the distress which they had been through, despite the death which they experienced, they will find that death is not the end. Instead, they will live. Those who were faithful, who were persevered by God in this life, though they die, they will rise again. They will awake And sing this great song of deliverance. The dew represents a covering which takes place on the ground. So it is with the light that they experience. Though they were once in darkness and death, the light which they will be brought into will shatter all the darkness. And now we're going to come to the final few verses. Come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. I'm going to pause right now. I'm going to add 27.1 because there's a lot of people who think that it belongs with what we've already read in chapter 26. And then there's others who think it doesn't. Uh, Biblical studies, right? Um... So I'm going to read it, but I'm going to comment on it next week. In that day, the Lord with his um, hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Um, So yeah, I know that's like kind of like a cliffhanger, right? (laughs) Ah, Come back next week. Um, Anyway, the people are encouraged to seek the refuge found in God. This does not mean that they do not resist the darkness around them as they should not stand against it. No, it is recognition of finding their security in God. By placing their faith in him, whatever indignation of chastisement which occurs will eventually pass over. God will be the one who sustains them. Because the reality is clear. God will judge the wicked. The earth itself will be relieved over this judgment to come against the wicked. Though they had been in power in their oppression, God, in the end, will claim victory over them. The powers of the world, both human and spiritual, 
are no match for the might of God. So the main point of these verses are to describe the true power of the faithful. It is not in themselves, but in God. As such, when the world darkens around them, and when opposition comes against them, in the end they find their assurance in God. Because God is their foundation, they are able to withstand the trials and the flood. Though the world oppresses, in the end the faithful will be vindicated by God, and they will rise again into his glorious light. So when we consider our current times, it can be easy for us to become discouraged. There is so much happening around us, so much happening in our society, which would accurately and could accurately be described as spiritual darkness. Whether it is the redefinition of justice and righteousness, the twisting of truth, or the lack of foundations which help steady a society. In the end, all of these things are disturbing. As the world continues to spiral down into the pit, many could conclude that this is the end. The final frontier. There's no turning back for humanity. This time we have gone too far. There's no more hope to be had. In some ways, such conclusions would be true. Hope in the world is futile. And the more we place our trust and assurance in the world the more we will find ourselves on a merry-go-round of the nations, which goes through human history. Rise and fall, rise and fall. Yet that is the thing about it. Yes, this may be the worst we have seen it in society. Yes, this may be the worst we have seen in our lifetimes. Yes, it is really, yeah, is it really any different than any other time before? Is it any darker than it was before in the world? The answer is no. The world is bathed in darkness, and it has been bathed in darkness since the fall. Indeed, as Christians, we shouldn't at all be surprised over what we have been seeing in our society. In fact, we should be expecting it. The world has fallen. Humanity has fallen. And as such, darkness will continue to be here until the return of Christ. We know this is the case because we know sinfulness and know the world and humanity are robed in sin. While many others hold a belief that humanity is progressing toward a better tomorrow, our own time shows us that this is not the case. Even with all the technological advances we have made, all the knowledge we have attained, in the end, it is all tainted by our hands. That which can be purposed for good, we very often purpose for evil. Why is this? Because of sin. Sinfulness causes pride to swell within us. We believe we are sufficient. We believe we are capable on our own. As such, humanity then begins to define things such as morality, justice, righteousness, by our own means. In other words, arbitrarily. This then leads to a world we encounter today. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, deciding who is in and who is out, deciding who to silence, and who is allowed to speak. Why does this fail? Because the definitions, if defined only by us, constantly change. No one is capable of actually achieving things such as morality, justice, or righteousness, because what is condemned today will be allowed tomorrow, and what is allowed today becomes condemned tomorrow. 
Our morality, justice, and righteousness become like reeds in the wind, swaying to and fro without any proper foundation. As it is, we all know and want morality, justice, and righteousness to exist. If we didn't, then we wouldn't spend so much time trying to define these things. The problem, however, is that humans are incredibly short-sighted. We have no idea what is going to happen today, let alone tomorrow, or in the next thousand years from now. As such, our own reasoning is not adequate enough to provide the foundation necessary for such concepts as these. And this is what Isaiah has been telling us repeatedly. It isn't just with morality, justice, and righteousness. It's also with all things we consider to be powerful. The world offers us all the chances it may to turn away from God, and we see over and over again why all of them fall short. Instead of turning toward God, however, the only possible foundation for existence, we continue to choose ourselves and continue to fall into the cycle of rising and falling. The reason the way the world is is the way it is today is because of such sinfulness. Because we believe we are sufficient, because we believe we are all that exists, and therefore it is upon ourselves we place the heavy burden of eternal truths. If naturalism, if materialism, if postmodernism, if these philosophical concepts are true, then yes, this is the best we can do. Forever changing on a whim, forever suspect to our own limitations. If, however, God exists, then we do not need to rely on our limited selves. Instead, we would have a true and strong foundation by which to navigate the darkness around us. We would have a strong hold to sustain us when the world seems to falter and become unglued. We would have meaning and purpose in the world. We would know justice and righteousness for all time because it would come from an eternal source, which is God. In other words, all that Isaiah has proclaimed today would be true. If it is true then we have no reason to worry about all that is happening in our society. Instead, we would be able to overcome that society, not because we are so powerful, but because God is so powerful. We would be able to stand against the torrents of a world falling apart because God is stronger than the world. It is in him we find our assurance, not the nation, not the society, but him. Yet we need to be cautious. Because overcoming... The world does not mean going unscathed. Those who belong to the world will punish those who belong to God. They will demand that they follow all that they believe and say. They will belittle, they will mock, and even attack those who claim to belong to God. They will jeer, they will hurt, they will hinder. Isaiah describes it as such. The people are in distress because of the hindrances of the world, the pain of the world, the darkness of it all. Yet where do we find our peace? Well, the Apostle Paul says something about this in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Dan's favorite verse, by the way, 13. I remember. (laughs) Notice it. Notice it, though. Isaiah began by recognizing the peace of God is found for those who belong to his city and find his refuge. Christ is our refuge, and he provides our peace. Notice it is in Christ where peace is found under every circumstance. Why? Because Christ has overcome. He has defeated death. He has done it. Thus in him we find our peace and the reason why, even if the world should burn, we are content. Because in the end, he is victorious. And if we belong to him, we too share in his victory. If Christ, who is the conqueror, did not escape the darkness of the world, but instead died upon a cross, then how can we, his followers, expect expect to escape it either? No, it is guaranteed to us that if Christ should suffer, we shall as well. If we should suffer, and if the world should seek our destruction, then we can be resolute in our steadfastness. We can say, let it come. Because we know, though the world seeks our destruction, God gives us life through Christ. So it is, this time we are facing is no different than any other time that has come before. Darkness, in the end, is always an absence of what is good. And therefore, it is no different from generation to generation. The questions, the worries, the fears... They have all been experienced before. The faithful of God have experienced them and will continue to face them long after we are gone. What kept those who have come before? That they knew God and the knowledge they had, we have as well. As such, we have assurance knowing God. We have trust that God has placed us exactly where we are for his intended purposes to speak truth, to be just and reasonable in a world of lies, injustice, and one which is far too unreasonable. Thus, we have refuge in this dark world. Our refuge is not made by our hands or our reason or our abilities. Our refuge is the foundation for all of reality, the place of our greatest hope, our greatest assurance, and the source from which all good things flow. Our refuge in this dark world is God himself. And I think all of this leads to the gospel in a pretty significant way. I really like these chapters when Isaiah is pretty much condemning the whole world and then showing us what it's like to believe in God because it's basically, hey, Jesus, <laughs> every time. Um, still, when it comes to humanity, we have to begin with our origins because if we don't and if we forget this point, then even our enemies, even those who we detest, will end up being nothing more than the detestations, our emotions. But we have to remember everyone is created in the image of God. Every person, even those who we greatly disagree with, are made in his image. They have the capacity to love. They have the capacity to honor God in righteousness. They have the capacity to do so much good in the world, just like we do. 
In fact, every human being has dignity, sanctity, and worth to life because they're made in the image of God. And this is something to rejoice in because that means you do. That means that you are wonderfully made. It's not just some of us, it's all of us. And we rejoice in this knowledge. The problem is, though, is what we see with the city of destruction, which Isaiah describes. Pride. Human sinfulness. To oppress others instead of helping others. The desire to trample everyone else underneath our feet. Sinfulness. The need to be right in our own eyes instead of being humble before God. Lying, cheating, killing. All of these things. All the pain which we cause each other in our relationships with those we love and those who we sometimes find it hard to love. It's because of sinfulness. It's because we have fallen into sin. And the truth is, is that we deserve judgment for it. The same judgment which is described in these chapters. And Isaiah says it the best. It is good for God to give judgments. Because then we can know righteousness. In a dark world where everything seems so dark, justice is the only thing that can give us true light. And it comes from God himself. The problem is, though, is that we deserve it. The problem is every single one of us have sinned. Every single one of us deserves his judgment. Every single one of us is an inhabitant of the city of destruction. The question is, how on earth can we escape? How on earth can we get out of the city that we belong to, which is in our very marrow? How do we do this? Isaiah tells us, who was it that did all their great works for them in Isaiah? God. Isaiah confesses. It wasn't they who did it all. It was God who did it. And so when we look at ourselves and we find Jesus Christ coming into the world and him rising again, his perfect life, his perfect teaching, we find our refuge. We find the one who will take away our judgment. He who lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh, he still reigns today and he still is alive. He is our refuge. He is our hope. Without him, we would have none, but we have hope today because of him. And that is a beautiful thing because it reminds us of what we just learned in Isaiah. We can't do it on our own. Christ built it. He's done it. All it requires of us is faithfulness. Faithfulness to stand strong in the midst of so much adversaries that come against us, that seek to destroy us. To continue our eyes on Christ, keeping our way faithful. He does it by his grace. And where is it leading though? Notice, what does it say? We actually see it in today's text as well, which is why, again, I love Isaiah. The dew is like light. Dew, it covers all the ground in the morning. The light that we will experience will cover all of our beings. All of who we are. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls will be covered and bathed in robe, not in darkness anymore, but in light. And it's already begun. We've seen the light come, Jesus Christ. And it's going to get to a point when it fully covers everything and all of the struggles are gone 
That's glory that we're talking about there. Glory of God. I understand it, right? This world is a dark world. Last verse that we read today that I didn't comment on, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, right? The serpent, Leviathan. That's what it feels like today. <laughs> if you notice, though, God still defeats him. God's going to defeat all the darkness. In fact, he already has through Christ. So let's continue on in faithfulness. Continue on to proclaim the truth, even when it comes against us, those who would seek to destroy us. Because we will not be destroyed. Christ reigns. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for his gospel, for the fact that through him we find salvation, and in him we find our greatest of refuge. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to keep our eyes upon him, the one who has made our path straight, the one who teaches us righteousness and justice, the one who reminds us that evil is in the world, but that evil can be overcome by you. You are the great one, Lord. You are the one who is able, not us. Yet, here you are with us, giving us knowledge of yourself, giving us your Holy Spirit to guide us, creating a fellowship which is so deep that nothing can penetrate it, fellowship with you and with each other. So Lord, give us the strength to overcome this world because you have already done it. Let us remember that it comes from you. We thank you for all that you have done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I thank you all for